welcome to the International Women's Day podcast series two. In 2022, the theme is Breaking the Bias. So following on from exploring feminism in series one, this podcast aims to explore how we break the bias in the divorce arena in the UK. I'm Kerry Griffiths. I'm a proud feminist and I'm also a financial planner who works exclusively with women divorcing wealthy and powerful men. So you can probably guess why this is a topic I want to dig into. I'm interviewing some leading academics, lawyers and divorce coaches to uncover where the bias in divorce shows up and debate how we can create the change we feel we need to see. Hello and welcome along to this third edition. I am super excited. I've got Laura with me. She's a senior associate in family law and author of the Family Lawyer's Guide to Separation and Divorce. And I've known Laura for quite a while and I am really intrigued to find out her perspective on where we see the bias in divorce. Um, Laura and I haven't talked about it, so it's going to be a really fresh (laughs) conversation and we're going to talk about it from both angles. So I didn't want to put Laura in a position where she was having to side with the women like I do. So we're going to get a really in-depth discussion from a family (laughs) lawyer's perspective on breaking the bias. Where does it come up in divorce? And, you know, does she see it? And and what does she think we can do about it? So, Laura, welcome. It's wonderful to have you here. Thanks. Thanks for having me. It's a great topic. (laughs) I've not actually had been interviewed about this, so it's really great. I think um, International Women's Day always gives us an opportunity to think about um, what are the current pressures. And I think we're all becoming aware of conscious and unconscious bias um, and where they're showing up. So I just think, yeah, it's a really interesting perspective now to think specifically on divorce, where is that showing up? So let's start there, you know, really open question. Do you see bias in divorce? Is it something that is on your radar, Laura? I definitely do see it from my clients more than I see it from other solicitors or courts. I think we have a society where there is still a very much um, that traditional setup still in families. And I think it stems from that very much. Um, The traditional setup being you have one breadwinner, one stay at home spouse, Um, And if there are children, that person is also the primary caregiver. And there are stereotypical views that come with those roles. And the people who bring those biased opinions are those in those roles. Less so if I have a client who is in a relationship where they aren't in those stereotypical roles or if they're in the reverse of those stereotypical roles. So if it is the male that is the stay-at-home parent, I don't, I don't see it as much, um, but I definitely see it where I have those clients. Only yesterday I was speaking to a new client who, although now, now that her children are A-level and university age, and she is, is earning well over, you know, 150,000 per annum in her own right and her husband too has incredible earnings because he earns more and because she sacrificed her career during their marriage to raise the children she was really really concerned am I going to have the same outcome as him 
am I going to be able to share? He's been putting all his bonuses in his pension and I've not. And it was a real genuine fear for her that she would be effectively discriminated against because of their setup during their, their marriage and the, the years when their children were, were minor. And, and that bias had come for her from those traditional roles. But then I think in the children's side of divorce, or if you're unmarried, um, the, the reverse applies. So whereas females typically are the ones that fear the bias in the finances, I think the males fear the bias in the children's proceedings. There, there is a, um, again, it's a stereotypical view from, from the lay people that the children have more likelihood of being with the mother. That's not in law. In law, there is a rebuttable, but nonetheless a presumption that the children should have a relationship with both parents, but people don't always see that. And I think a lot of that comes from society, but media, I think media coverage influences those kind of biased views. But I'm not so sure that I see it actually at the coalface when we go to court from that perspective, but it's definitely a bias that people come with nevertheless. This resonates for me. And I think, it, you know, it's probably fair to say I don't really see it at the coalface either, you know, where I have clients and when they are in the thick of things and we are getting through proceedings, um, that's not where they're seeing the bias. It is very much in this lead up. And I think there's a really interesting point, Laura, where the, if we take the finance side of things and where we see an environment that a woman has not had the financial contribution because of the caregiving role and you're in that situation there is kind of two things I see happening I see women themselves not valuing their input and, and kind of not putting the, the weight on that but then I also see a situation where you um, the woman is in a position where she has to convince her her former spouse um of, of what is fair and they have to get from where they are right now to just even seeing that her contribution was valid before they can then even start to fairly negotiate how they should move forward so it's kind of like they've got this big journey on just to get to where the starting point should be does that make sense to yeah. you yeah I mean obviously the law doesn't say that no so... it doesn't. do you want to say what the law says because I think that it's just not out there people don't realize so cover that bit Laura yeah well so the law is that the starting point for the division of assets is fairness. And then our, our statutory law, so our written laws, have what we call the section 25 factors. The name comes from the section to which it refers. Um, and those factors, you know, take into account different um, issues that um, a different family setup would, would have, and they're weighted differently to each family circumstances. So things such as the ages, the health of the parties, any children, the resources of the parties, um, contributions, inheritance, et cetera, et cetera. But the main factor there that leads most cases are needs, the needs of the parties. 
And then when we consider, okay, well, how do we interpret fairness? What does fairness mean? We then look to case law. And case law are where the previous people's divorces have gone up through the ranks of the courts. And the, the higher they've gone up in the court cases, they those cases then become reported. So we all get to have a look at what has happened before to previous couples. Now, obviously, those cases that go up through the ranks are going to be the bigger money cases because they've got to have had the resources in order to afford to appeal up through the, 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 the higher courts. So the case law we have tend to be bigger money cases, but nevertheless, the principles do trickle down to the medium and smaller size money cases. And case law tells us how we interpret fairness. And we've had a few different cases, but effectively, the law is you start by dividing everything equally. Everything meaning the capital and the pension assets. Yeah. So property, um, money in the bank, investments, and varying pension forms um, and assets. Income, future earnings are, are treated differently. So they're not considered an asset like a house available for equal division. But that's, that's a starting point is equality is how we interpret fairness. And needs is really the leading argument for determining the correct way to separate assets. So we look at, well, what does equality give each party? And does equality meet each party's respective needs? Now there is a bias in that, I suppose, because where there are children, if the children spend an unequal amount of time with one parent over the other, then the children's needs are prioritized, particularly in cases where there isn't sufficient money to go around and give them both the same standard of living and house size that they enjoyed while they were together. Um, so the bias there comes that the party who is going to have the children live predominantly with them has got a case to say they need more if equality isn't sufficient to meet their needs alone. And that could then lead to them having a, a, a higher share. Um, and traditionally, that would be usually the female. Woman, yeah. um, but I think that is changing. I see a particularly lockdown has changed that. It has enabled so many of my male clients to work from home and work flexibly to allow them to actually have a far better uh, and more meaningful share of their children's care. And so I have seen a huge increase in the last two years in a more equal parenting and therefore more reason to have an equal division of the finances. Fabulous. I think it is um, a lot to navigate, isn't it? You know, just in kind of trying to understand what the starting point is. There's so many different factors that come in there. I think one of the key points that I find time and time again, clients um, struggle with or wrestle with, and one of the things that they often have to go on a journey with is this concept that a financial contribution and a homekeeping contribution are equally valued. Um, and, and that's the case, isn't it, Laura? They, they, they actually consider there's an equal value to that marriage. Yes, the case of white and white is the one that really established that which is where previously the law said 
look, well, look at all the finances. What have you got? Okay, wife, who stereotypically was the the non-earning spouse and child carer, you have your needs met and anything left over after your needs are met stays with the person whose name they are in, which typically was the breadwinning husband. And that had an inherent bias to it because a wife, a mother who was non-earning or not the breadwinner um, just had needs and the husband got everything else. So the case of white and white is really the case that established that both roles, both contributions to the marriage, whether that be a financial breadwinning contribution or the contribution as a homemaker and care, care provider um, are equal. I don't really have many cases where I have much legal debate over that nowadays. The legal debate I have tends to be with the client themselves in getting them to understand that and accept that. The that female client, not the male client. Um, I, I, yeah, I agree. I think there is a lot of um, mindset that needs to change still with our female clients around the value that they are bringing um, to the table. I wonder, therefore, Laura, how do you think that plays out when there aren't legal teams involved? So, you know, there'll be plenty of divorces that aren't coming through yourself and maybe they're going through mediation or maybe they're using a DIY method. I, do you think we've got systemically a, a problem there or is, is there some um, systems in place that kind of catch something going through that wouldn't necessarily be fair? There is absolutely a risk that people aren't getting the right outcome. But that's just inherent if you're not taking legal advice full stop. You're never gonna do as well um, on your own as you would if you had legal advice because that, uh, that urge to just get it done, to cut corners, that's why you're not taking legal advice is because you don't want the big legal fees, you don't want to drag it out. You want to avoid perceptions of conflict that lawyers may bring. So you're inherently going to do worse off than, than you would have with legal advice. But it, it allows the dynamic of a more dominant spouse who tends to be more dominant because they are the more financially stable, the one who has got the assets held in their name, the one who has got more financial understanding um, to take advantage and to bully uh, into submission. You know, how many times I have clients say to me, I hope you don't mind, but my husband's told me not to get legal advice and will be better to just do this without lawyers getting involved. And I'm increasingly being instructed and in talking to my clients about ghost advising which is really attractive to, to those types of situations. So you don't have to disclose that you've got legal advice, but it just really helps prop you up when you're having those direct conversations. Going through to reaching a settlement, people aren't always aware that once you've re reached agreement, you need to have that formalized in a court order. So if you're doing it yourself, the DIY divorce is fairly straightforward online, but people aren't, really understanding that they also need to do a financial order 
And drafting a financial order is a bit like drafting your own will. There's, yeah. it's, it's, but it's not as easily accessible. You know, you can't Google template financial order and understand what you're drafting as you may be able to budget with a will. Not that I'm advocating doing that. Um, but so that means people are missing out there. People aren't properly formalizing their agreements. But if they do, there is a slight catch there in that when submitting a financial order to the court for approval, the judges must scrutinize it. They must consider that settlement. And with it, there is a form that people have to complete a statement of information for a consent order, which gives a snapshot of what your finances and your respective incomes are prior to that settlement taking place. And the judge will have to look at that and decide whether what you have agreed is fair in your circumstances. Obviously, it's not with all the detail. It is literally just a snapshot. But there is a slight potential there of a, of a bit of a safety net that a judge could catch it. And particularly because you have to disclose that you've done it without legal advice. So a judge might, but, you know, I don't think that is can be relied upon really to catch those scenarios. But it does open the door for narcissists, for domestic abuse. And particularly with the no-fault divorce laws coming in next month, which really make divorce far more straightforward, it is, I think we're going to see a real rise of people wanting to do it themselves, to reach agreement themselves. And there will be a rise in people not getting a fair share. I think you raised some really, really valid points. The only thing I would like to add, I think, is... Even when you are divorcing and you're both just really reasonable people, your preconceptions on what what is fair are probably off the mark. Um, yeah. and, you know, as we've talked about today. So even where we don't have these toxic personalities, there's still possibly some work to be done in media, you know, just societally so that we can get the perception out there that we the starting point is where the starting point is and you know it's not his pension their joint marital assets and actually getting to a place where that's just the norm um and yeah i think that's my big fear is there are plenty of people who are very happy with the outcome they've got but ne haven't necessarily got what is going to be a fair outcome in the long run yeah and actually if you look at unmarried couples which yeah. is a growing family type now that okay. is the most common family type in our country, our laws are completely different for them and are biased inherently against that family setup where you have a breadwinner and a stay-at-home parent. The laws do not allow them financial claims against each other. And yes, you can make financial claims if you have children on behalf of your child, but they don't allow you proper a share of the assets by virtue of that family setup that you had. And there is huge bias, huge bias in the unmarried um, laws. And I, you know, that's a, a growth area for family law and where we will hopefully see legislative change in years to come. But considering we're already there in a society, we're already using that as our main um, family type that the bias is 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 going to be a real cause for society in years to come we're gonna have more people relying on benefits as a consequence of relationship breakdown because 
those unmarried couples don't have the benefit of the sharing of, of marital assets that, that you do if you were married. Huge point. Um, I want to talk to you a little bit about what changes you'd like to see. But before we get there, Laura, I'm just really conscious that um, we haven't talked about the children's side particularly um, and the bias that comes up there. Is there some more you can share there in terms of, of, of where it's coming up? And have you got some thoughts about what we can do about it? I think the ages of the children really matter because if you've got very young children, um, predominantly it's the, the female who has the time off to have the child and then the parental leave tends to be more the female. And if you then have a relationship breakdown shortly thereafter, you've already got the setup where the dominant parent is the female. And um, although, you know, in the last few years, we've had a huge sea change in encouraging males to ha also have parental leave and you can share it now. It's not, it's, we're not quite, you know, there. Like, um, I think it's Sweden has yep. really great rules for both. Latte peppers, they call them, the latte mm. peppers, yeah. And we're not there. We're not there. I would like to see a better change there because I think that would, from the outset, equalize parenting. And then that wouldn't then give way to an automatic bias towards the mother because that happens just purely by that. And breastfeeding makes a huge difference when they're really young. You know, there is an automatic bias just from nature. Yeah. Um, but that's understandable. Thereafter, um, the age of the children, it really comes down, I think, to the, the ability of the parents to partake in the, the children's upbringing. So as long as they're both living close together, and now we are working from home more, we are all far more accepting of working flexibly, why can't both parents equally contribute to the children's upbringing? And I think employers have changed um, from that perspective. And it's just, we are all much more accepting. You know, previously, there was definitely a view that if you were working from home, you were slacking. If you were working, if you weren't available between those core working hours, then you, um, you were slacking. But not, no, lockdowns really improved that. And thank goodness, because I think had that not happened, we would still be years waiting for those kind of changes to come in. That's accelerated it for the, for the better, hasn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. So I suppose yeah. my last question for you, Laura, is what changes would you like to see overall? You know, how, how do you think we can break some of this bias? Um, it's really difficult because... Yes, we're having those cases that are coming through and establishing and making it clear that there should be no bias between the different roles people play. Um, I definitely think it needs to be something that is made more commonly known to, to people. Nuptial agreements are on the rise, but they, I do think, bring bias in um, because what they allow you to do is contract out of what our marital laws say. Why, why are you contracting out of those marital laws that say fairness should start with equality? Because you want to bring bias in. You want, whether it may not be down to um, 
the sex of the parties, the bias, but that is what you're doing. So I don't know if, if nuptial agreements are the key there, but I, I do like the idea, like in like some of the other countries like Italy, when you get married, you do sign up at the marriage to a kind of set rules of this is how we're gonna divide our marital assets, et cetera. And we don't really have that. We get engaged, it's all wonderful. We have the wedding, it's all wonderful. At what point do married couples actually sit and think if we got divorced what would happen that's that's at that point is where people have these preconceived ideas and of, you know they're bitter by then aren't they laura and if you can have that conversation at a point where you have the best interest of your other party more at heart and like what a great insight as well if you do that at, before you get married and the outcome isn't great you know what they think you should have that's a lot to ponder on isn't it before you go down the aisle you're yeah. kind of thinking if they really think that the contribution I'm bringing here is so little that's a really interesting concept to bring to it yeah I think just having a kind of a, a standard this is by the way this is what our laws would say should you later divorce I think just on bringing an awareness in so that people yeah. don't go into it with preconceived ideas I love that. and people understand what they're getting into, not necessarily having to be a binding contract or an optional agreement, but just eyes wide open kind of financial chat would be really, I think that would bring a sea change to it. And, you know, as I said, unmarried couples, we need to, we've got a lot of work to do there, a lot of work to do loads of work absolutely Laura thank you so much for your contribution I could have talked to you all day and there's so much more to unpack um and yeah maybe we'll do some follow-ups to this but thank you so much for today well thank you it's been brilliant I've really enjoyed it and well done for coming up with this <laughs> thank you Laura take care you have been listening to the International Women's Day podcast series two breaking the bias on divorce Please do tell your friends and let's keep the conversation going about the changes we need to see.